This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. And welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Yunarna Grottingen, Ambassador for Global Health at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Norway, Adjunct Scientific Director at the Norwegian Institute of Public Health, and Visiting Fellow of Practice at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. Ambassador Rottingen previously served as founding interim chief executive officer of CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, and was chief executive of the Research Council of Norway. He's been incredibly busy over the past two and a half years. He's been involved with the Facilitation Council of ACT-A, the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, which was established in the spring of 2020 to ensure globally equitable access to COVID tests, treatments, and vaccines. And he has served as the chair of the International Steering Committee of the World Health Organization's Solidarity Trial, which was established to integrate data and assess existing drugs for potential as therapies for COVID-19. Now, Yunarna joined me back in February of 2021 to talk about the state of global cooperation to address the COVID-19 pandemic and to discuss his priorities at that point in his relatively new role as ambassador for global health. Today, we'll discuss the state of global cooperation two and a half years into the pandemic, the new financial intermediary fund approved last week by the World Bank Executive Board, the current monkeypox outbreak, and why we need to include antimicrobial resistance into future work on pandemic preparedness and response. Welcome back to Pandemic Planet. Thank you very much, Catherine, for inviting me back. It's great to be a part of this once more. Well, thank you. So you appeared on this podcast, I think, roughly a year and a half ago, February of 2021, really just as the first COVAX vaccines were being shipped to the countries that were eligible for the advanced market commitment. And I think the first country, maybe they had just landed in Ghana around the time that we spoke. And at that point, there was still a great deal of discussion about scarcity in terms of vaccines. But now... Currently, in July of 2022, the concern is the ability of many countries to deliver those vaccines, as well as low demand on the part of some governments and populations as well. And so I wanted to ask you, from your perspective within the ACT-A Facilitation Council, what does the vaccine rollout at this point in time tell us about the effectiveness of global collaboration in the pandemic response? And how, you know, over this period, really since February of 2021, when those vaccines first started to be rolled out, how have your priorities within the council and as Norway's global health ambassador really changed and, and perhaps expanded during this period? So maybe first to go back, as you said, to the first shipments to Ghana last year, early 2021. That was a, a great day. It was late and much later than shipments, of course, to other countries. but we. 
saw a big promise in the ability then to start delivering at scale vaccines to the poorest countries in low-income countries and, and in particular Africa. At the same time, what then happened in the following months was that actually we were not able to continue the delivery at the scale we had hoped for from COVAX. So the scarcity of vaccines actually we had for more than nine months. And the main criticism on the lack of the, as you said, sound global collaboration was the lack of ability to ensure sufficient supply of vaccines to the global south. And to be honest, that was really our main priority. We focused a lot on resource mobilization and making sure that we could benefit from the existing supply and making sure that the low-income countries through the COVAX facility did not fall behind in the queue. So there was a lot of political outreach, also making sure that we also changed the portfolio gradually of COVAX so that it could deliver vaccines that later more and more proved the most value to people. However, what we now have seen in the last six months is really a change from supply constraint to what you can call oversupply, at least if you compare the supply to the demand and what is really being used in countries. And that came, I must say, much faster and maybe a bit too much to a surprise to us in the Facilitation Council and in the ACT Accelerator as such. I think it's a combination of the real sort of capacity constraints on the ground linked to logistical challenges, cold chain challenges, and indeed human resources, and not having sufficient primary healthcare capacity to reach, in particular, a new population. Adults, in particular, the elderly, other risk groups that normally may not have a regular contact, for instance, from vaccination programs. But I think the other reason is more on the political side. The supply was really getting high and sustained almost in the same time as we had the Omicron wave passing through many and most countries of the world. And I think that changed also the political priorities. Many countries felt that, okay, maybe it's too late to vaccinate. Maybe that's not any longer our biggest priority. Maybe we need to focus on other health issues than COVID-19, at least for our own scarce domestic resources. So I think it's been also very much a need to sustain and strengthen the communication on why we still need to ensure vaccination of the people at least at the highest risk and why that is important for health impact now but also important for a preparedness point of view towards potential new waves of variants of COVID-19. And so has your work you know over the I guess the past six to ten months as this shift has happened from supply to delivery and this question of demand. Have you found yourself engaging with with different groups, both domestically in terms of, you know, understanding Norway's domestic priorities around foreign policy and then also with other groups overseas? Has this changed your priorities and your work in some ways? I think for many countries, we have seen that we need to invest more on delivery capacity and we need to invest more on uh, engagement with countries uh, on these issues. That was also a collective effort. More or less around New Year, we, together with other actors and Gavi, the COVAX mechanism, but also UNICEF, WHO, established the COVID-19 vaccine delivery platform, a joint mechanism across the multilateral organizations working on vaccine delivery, uh, and where Ted Chaiban from UNICEF was appointed as a coordinator. To us, that was really an important focusing element, making sure that 
all actors in countries, in individual countries, do work collectively and do work on the, a joint plan and a joint way of thinking about priorities and needs. We also identified the countries at most need for additional support, technical support, as well as financial support to ensure increasing delivery capacities. Those are countries that at that stage were way below 10% vaccine coverage uh, of the population. And then, of course, you need a country-by-country assessment and follow-up because the challenges, the barriers are different in different countries. But just making sure that all actors, bilateral actors, NGOs and governments are, and of course, multilateral organizations are working on the same plan. I think that was an important effort that we agreed and I think actually have managed to, to support since January. So you've talked about ACT-A and COVAX and you know, the role that Gavi, UNICEF and WHO have really played in, in making the work of COVAX function over, over the past couple of years throughout this pandemic. You know, at the end of June, the World Bank Executive Board formally decided to establish a fund to support pandemic preparedness and response activities. And so, you know, as you've said, I mean, you know, we've already seen that existing organizations like Gavi and also the Global Fund and others have played an important role in responding to the pandemic, both in allowing countries to use their existing health system strengthening support for outbreak response early on, and then also in procuring vaccines, tests, and other commodities necessary for dealing with the pandemic. So I wanted to, you know, ask you, you know, why it is we might need another fund specifically for pandemic preparedness and response when we have these existing funds already, and how, given that the bank has really decided to move this forward, how can we make sure that a new fund for pandemic response activities is aligned with and, you know, complements existing funds for global health without taking funds away from them. And if you could just say, you know, a bit about sort of the need for a new fund and how you see that kind of alignment with existing global health funds taking shape. To me, the the decision of the World Bank Board was an important decision, and it's great for health security, for pandemic preparedness. But I also understand uh, the critical questions that have been put forward regarding why do we need yet another fund in global health? Many would say that we already have too many mechanisms and funds and organizations in global health internationally. And what we really need is more finding solutions for a consolidated sort of system. But to me, I think this can still be reconciled as a sort of a good way forward. The financing mechanism or the fund that was decided has its history from the recommendations of the G20 high-level independent panel on financing collective commons for pandemic preparedness, as well as also the, in, uh, the IPPR, the other panel uh, appointed by WHO. I think it needs to be clear that this is not a response mechanism. So it's, it's in that sense very different from ACT Accelerated, which is a response mechanism and was set up very much ad hoc during the pandemic. This is a preparedness mechanism that needs to function in a sustainable way and create predictable financing for pandemic preparedness. I like to call it a mechanism instead of a fund, but that's of course only words. But the reason I say this is that a fund would normally be seen as an organization with capacities to implement and take an independent role in many ways of delivering on a specific mission and mandate. This mechanism will not be a fund in that respect. It will be a mechanism for 
ensuring that we have a focused resource mobilization effort for pandemic preparedness. That has been very difficult. I think many of us, of us have seen that it's easier to fundraise for healthcare and for treatments and for specific diseases like HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria, and, and also for specific interventions like vaccines than actually fundraising for preparedness and prevention. So I think it is important to use the opportunity that there is now a strong political attention on the need for better preparedness to actually create a resource mobilization mechanism like a new fifth. Secondly, then, instead of being an implementer, this will not be an independent implementing organization. It will be an organization or a mechanism, I should rather say, that will, because it's, of course, a part of the World Bank legally, it will use existing global health organizations as implementers. So that is now and could include the World Bank, WHO, UNICEF as uh, UN organizations, also other multilateral development banks. But the board has also now indicated that they would like to see the Global Fund, Gavi and CEPI included as implementing entities. So this means that the financing mechanism and its governance arrangements will have a broad number of actors to play on and actually work with, and then also incentivize and coordinate around a common mission for financing preparedness. So that's why I think it's valuable to have created an additional mechanism. It's first and foremost for resource mobilization efforts, for coordination efforts, making sure to keep the momentum up on preparedness financing and making sure that we can make the system work better from a coordination point of view when it comes to financing for health systems capacities in many ways in countries. But it also has an ability to finance global public goods or global commons like network of surveillance and alert capacities and, and systems on both regional and global levels. And also, which is then linked maybe to Act A, is a capacity to invest in a preparedness mode to making sure that we have capacity to develop and supply medical countermeasures when a new crisis hit later. You then also bring up important questions on how do we avoid this just becoming a mechanism that will sort of steal money from the existing financing streams to global health organizations? And how do we avoid crowding out in many ways of existing development aid finance for health? That is more of a challenge and it, it's really a political question. Uh, to me, it is important that we continue framing this as a global public good, as a security finance, as many ways a foreign policy measure to make sure that we have a stable world, we have a secure world, we have a macroeconomic stable world. So the arguments are very much in all countries' self-interest to make sure that we have a system that operates and very different then from the main political reasons for investing in aid uh, and support to countries when it comes to strengthening health development issues and, of course, maximizing health in low-income countries and in developing countries. So I hope that we will continue using that framing and that argument for raising funds for the fifth on pandemic preparedness in the future. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that, you know, okay, yes, we've had all these different replenishments this year. You had the global financing facility, CEPI, the global funds replenishment is coming up this year. You know, there are all these different resource mobilizations for different elements. And so those will still go on. And the idea behind this new financial intermediary fund or this mechanism, as you're calling it, is to, you know, say, okay, look, this is not just for donor countries engaging through overseas development assistance funds or accounts to to support this. I mean, this is something that 
all countries who are concerned about and engaged in the response to or preparing and responding to pandemics should contribute domestic resources. It's not just a, a development kind of program, but this should really be seen as a, a much greater, as you've put it, a global public good. Yes, absolutely. And, and in many ways, you can see it as a global health security premium, because this is an insurance we collectively pay into to try. Of course, we cannot have a zero vision with no more epidemics or pandemics. That, that's a, a tall order, order, but we can definitely reduce the risks and being much better prepared, thereby reducing the consequences. So it's in all countries' self-interest to finance this. But we need to engage them what we can call non-ODA budgets, so non-official development aid budget lines. So we need to, to speak with the health ministries of countries and, and the finance ministries that understand both how this will reduce macroeconomic negative consequences of epidemics and outbreaks, as well as, of course, reducing health impacts of crisis. So this is very much to me about framing and understanding why we invest uh, collectively in, in mechanisms like this. I want to turn back to some of the challenges, you know, we've seen under the current pandemic uh, that, you know, may have implications for how we're thinking about things in terms of preparedness and for a future one. Over the past several months, several new antiviral therapies for COVID-19 have received emergency use authorization. There are licensing agreements with generics producers to make them available at lower cost to lower income and middle income countries. But there are also upper middle income countries that have not been eligible for the lower cost generics for those agreements on the one hand. And what we've seen is that so far, much of the procurement of the new products, at least the antivirals, has been by the high income countries. And so there are some gaps in terms of access. And at the same time, you know, there's not really a mechanism like we see for COVAX for the vaccines, for example, to promote that kind of equitable distribution, at least, you know, not as visibly. So I just wanted to ask you your sense, you know, having been involved with the solidarity trials, you know, really looking at how to repurpose some of those existing products for, for COVID response, and also, you know, just what you've seen through the, the ACTA Facilitation Council. What can we do with therapies to make sure we don't repeat the, the mistakes or the challenges of what we saw in terms of inequitable access in 2020, 2021. You know, the vaccine nationalism that was so talked about where the high income countries were doing deals with the producers and, you know, really left COVAX and some of the other countries that were looking for vaccines, you know, out in the cold. A second question I have related to this issue of the antivirals is there have been other available therapies that have been used in, in many places, such as the monoclonal antibodies. But in general, these are not only more costly to produce, but they can be difficult to administer in, in some of the settings where the health system is not as strong. So one challenge really is this question of, of distribution and access to existing products. Because the second, you know, would just be your sense of how do we encourage thinking about equitable access and use of products kind of from the earliest moments of the R&D process for new products? First, I, I think we, we should definitely celebrate that uh, research and development has managed to deliver oral antivirals that seem to have very beneficial effects. And if used early, can avoid hospitalizations, at least used, reduce almost with a factor of 80% relative risk of, of being hospitalized. 
which is a tremendous scientific breakthrough. And in many ways, it's been almost, in at least in general media and among the public, I think partly forgotten compared to all the general understanding of the benefit of vaccines. Uh, I think actually this is a major breakthrough. And we have, I think actually we see uh, barriers to use not only in, in low-income countries, but actually also in high-income countries, partly because of lack of understanding of, of the importance uh, and the potential benefit of these treatments. I would say that there was a large research program on therapeutics. Um, it was probably easier in some way to go for the monoclonal antibodies because those could be directed very specifically towards the same or similar antigens that we were also vaccinating against. But we also know that, that as you said, that's, it's a costly treatment and it's even not very widely accessible in high-income countries. Uh, and it was reserved for high-risk patients and when they are hospitalized. So it's definitely first and foremost used further down the treatment pipeline. I believe that at the perfect uh, target product profile when it comes to finding products that is uh, useful and viable for all countries is in, indeed an oral antiviral that can be taken early on. And we have been successful in developing those. I think we also have a mechanism to buy them and also to deliver them actually through the ACT Accelerator because the therapeutics pillar of ACT Accelerator is and should function very similarly to the COVAX facility for vaccines in the sense that we have a pool procurement mechanism. And there has actually been a 4 million doses bought on behalf of ACT Accelerator to make sure that we can provide those drugs in low-income countries. The barrier is, of course, the number of treatments. are It's still very small compared to the need. And then there's also barriers to treatment, no, to testing, making sure that we can actually direct treatment to those that are needing that it. So we have seen the diagnostic capacities, in particular in Africa, being low all through the pandemic. And that's actually the testing rates have gone down this spring, week by week. And without testing, without diagnosing and without identifying those at highest risk, you cannot reach the target population of these antivirals. Then, of course, I think it's been also very positive that we have seen the willingness of two big pharmaceutical companies to license out their antivirals to a majority of countries. So more than or around 100 countries, low and lower middle income countries are able to get the generic versions of these medicines when they are being manufactured. The challenge is that that process took a bit time and it also takes time to establish quality approved production lines. So these antivirals, the generic versions of the antivirals will not be accessible until probably very late 2022 or, or even in 2023. So meaning indeed that we have the risk of having a very unequal access situation now in 2022. ACT Accelerator is the sort of remedy against that and making sure that we can deliver treatments through the therapeutics pillar and through the use of test and treat regimes in ACT Accelerator. I'm hopeful, but, but there we also actually see now a lack of demand and lack of sort of political attention and priorities for t test and treat regimes in many countries. One thing that struck me as you were talking, I mean, yes, we have these licensing agreements with the generics manufacturers, and it will take some time for them to be up and running. As you've said, it will be a while before those products are available. But if there's insufficient demand on the part of the countries that they serve for those products, I mean, do you see some of the generics producers just kind of backing away and saying, well, we're going to hold off or we're not going to 
to move forward with a great deal of production at this point? Or do you see this, this situation resolving on its own as those generics move forward in their production process? There's definitely a risk. And I think there are some signals that some of the manufacturers are downsizing their ambitions, to put it that way. And that is, of course, a risk to the overall ability to supply enough number of doses or treatment courses. The challenge then is very similar to what we discussed on the vaccine delivery side. We need a very sustained and clear demand from countries. That needs to be predictable. Easy to say, it's hard to to sort of deliver in the case of a pandemic that is currently maybe in a less uh, severe state. However, now as we speak, we see increasing number of hospitalizations and and also mortality in many countries due to the the last wave of the BA4 and 5 variant of Omicron. And we don't know how that will continue and, and whether there will be new variants coming later in the year. I think a crucial issue when it comes to the therapeutics is that it's not only about diagnosing, it's also about making sure that we identify the at-risk population, because this the treatment is not for everyone that is diagnosed with COVID. It's first and foremost for the elderly, for the immunocompromised, and for those with other preconditions or comorbidities that predict a more a sort of severe course of COVID-19. Many health systems don't have such systems to actually identify those individuals and making sure that they can target them. This is about communication, it's about awareness, and it's about health personnel capacity. So it's it's really back to the health systems constraints that we are also seeing for vaccination coverage. You've talked about the Omicron variant sublineages 4 and 5, which have really become much more prominent over the past several months, and the importance of communications really for helping providers understand the relevance of COVID therapies for at-risk populations in particular. But you've also talked about the importance of kind of a test and treat approach. Like you can't treat if you don't test. But if you don't test, you don't really know what's happening. So, you know, over the past several weeks, the outbreak of monkeypox has become a concurrent concern, you know, along with the different Omicron sublineages. But monkeypox has just in several weeks really prompted the rapid mobilization of vaccines and tests and treatments, along with communication strategies, you know, not just countries where since the 70s we had we had seen cases of monkeypox, but but really around the world. I wanted to ask you to reflect on the current response to monkeypox compared to the response to COVID over the past several years and ask if you see in the response to monkeypox any kinds of improvements in terms of communications and this deployment of tests, treatments, and vaccines. Do you think we've, we've really learned anything over the past few years or are we as the global community at risk of making some of the same mistakes in terms of inequities and inequitable access and poor communications in the long term? I think we, we are seeing similar patterns that we unfortunately have seen many times before. At the same time, I think we are at least seeing those patterns earlier and we are communicating about them and discussing them and discussing them as problems. Because as you say, monkeypox has been endemic in many African countries for decades. It's been not considered a big public health issue. There has not been any provision of antivirals or vaccines to try to help and, and, and reduce the spread. Now we then see outbreaks in Europe and we see increasing number of cases. 
I think as because it comes in the context of a pandemic, it uh, I think we all act actually faster. So both the ish, the use of antivirals as well as the use of a ring vaccination strategy, trying to vaccinate with a smallpox uh, vaccine around the contacts of cases, are promising sort of interventions. But we should also acknowledge that those are interventions that are not fully sort of evaluated, and we don't know how strong role they will really play in a public health response to monkeypox, because this is, of course, there are also other preventative measures that needs to be used. I think we need more research. I think we need a very solid analysis of the potential impact of countermeasures like vaccines and antivirals when it comes to handling monkeypox. And, and the main goal should need to reduce the number of cases and the spread and try to avoid that this now stabilizes in many ways as a human pathogen and also definitely avoid that it potentially enters into a, an animal population that can further uh, sustain its evolution. So we have COVID, we, now we have monkeypox, but kind of beyond this, before COVID, before we saw the explosion of global concern around monkeypox, you had been doing a great deal of writing and the research community has been talking about the current and really looming challenge of antimicrobial resistance before this pandemic, during the pandemic, and, and really the kind of looking ahead beyond the pandemic. The new financial intermediary fund approved by the World Bank Executive Board specifically references antimicrobial resistance as an activity and element of focus. And so I wanted to ask you to say a bit about how you think the global community could do a better job of working together to address the challenge of antimicrobial resistance, whether from the human health side or the animal health side, or, or really coming together across both of those those communities and why we should see international cooperation on antimicrobial resistance to really be, should be, you know, a really core element of pandemic preparedness and response. So uh, while we can call monkeypox in a way as a forgotten or a neglected epidemic, similar to many of the tropical diseases, we, I think AMR or, or infections caused by resistant pathogens is still a silent epidemic in many instances. And one of the main reasons is that we really do not know. We don't know the magnitude of to what extent resistant. The, the fact that an infection is resistant is causing um, mortality and morbidity. We have seen now recent estimates. They are estimates based on the best available evidence and data that indicates that actually AMR is much of a bigger health problem than earlier believed. 1.3 million deaths probably annually from infection from resistant pathogens or resistant bacteria, specifically on antibiotic resistance then. So to me, this is definitely a problem that we need to think around when we talk about strengthening capacities for pandemic preparedness, because there are so many overlapping capacities at com in countries when it comes to also tackling antimicrobial resistance. And, and the first and most clear overlapping capacities is the diagnostic capacity linked then to surveillance and sequencing capabilities and making sure that we actually understand the magnitude of the problem and that we can handle and tackle a resistant infection as a resistant infection early when it's detected. I think it is uh, and should be a part of any sort of development on pandemic preparedness, both on financing and also on when discussing a potential new pandemic accord or treaty or, or instrument at the World Health Organization. At the same time, there are also differences, which is also speaking to the need for countries to have better capacities because antibiotic resistance is not only about understanding the problem, it's also about making sure that we have 
sufficient access to antibiotics so that we can treat infections and treat infections early to avoid spread and making sure that we alleviate health problems. At the same time, we need to use antibiotics in a rational way and, and avoid overuse and misuse. So that is a very neat balance that um, speaks to proper diagnosis and proper treatment use. So the full, what we can call responsible use or stewardship or conservation agenda around antibiotics is an additional element that is less relevant or still could be relevant because we we would see potentially also antiviral resistance, of course, being developed for COVID-19. And definitely we have seen it for an epidemic like HIV. Um, But still for antibiotics, I, I think... It demonstrates that in the end, you need stronger health systems. You need prescription systems or dispensary systems where actually qualified personnel could make sure that antibiotics are used when needed and not used when not needed. So to me, this is a part of the same picture. And instead of calling this sort of pandemic preparedness and response, maybe it is really about ensuring capacity for controlling infectious disease and ensuring that we can control and avoid uh, cross-border health threats and emergencies from a more general sense. And definitely that would be the broader foreign policy commonalities around AMR, neglected diseases, endemic, big endemic diseases, as well as pandemics or potential pandemic prone or epidemics that are prone to become pandemics. So on the one hand, I mean, it sounds like Particularly for antibiotic resistance, we we need to have cooperation and and greater commitments around proper stewardship and conservation, you know, use of the products in appropriate but maybe somewhat limited ways. Maybe that raises the tension between what you've also said, you know, we need new products or we need a pipeline of products that can be available to address bacterial outbreaks, for example, where there is antibiotic resistance to develop new products. And so between this tension around commitments to try to reduce the overuse of existing antibiotics and then developing new products it's hard to see an incentive on the part of developers or researchers, you know, if there's going to be a limited use of the product. And I guess I would just ask you what you might see as, as ways to create uh, global cooperation for incentivizing the development of those new products. No, definitely, because I focused on, of course, understanding the problems, surveillance, but then access and stewardship being sort of main main interventions. But at the same time, Developing new drugs is the third sort of element or combined approach. And in many ways, as we have seen, antibiotic development is not any longer a commercial viable market. And we see, have seen over many years now that the big companies are withdrawing from that. And we also see that companies with specific focus on antibiotic development actually needs to close down because they don't have a revenue stream that can sustain their long-term commercial viability. In that sense, it is very similar to epidemics and also similar to neglected diseases because those three areas are areas where there is at least not commercially viable markets. Neglected diseases because there's not purchasing power. Epidemics because there is not sufficient understanding of what is the next epidemic. So there's too high risk to bet on all different options. So there will be no vaccine development if that was only a, a sort of a commercial, a private sector role. 
That's why we need collaboration and we need public-private partnership and we need additional interventions to incentivize innovation. We will see this, I hope now, coming out of the pandemic. We saw it after the Ebola outbreak of West Africa. CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, was created indeed to correct the market failure of lack of vaccine development for epidemics. I hope we will see after the pandemic there will be an increased effort for a systematic approach to correcting the market failure of engaging private sector and private innovation capabilities for developing not only vaccines, but also diagnostics and therapeutics for epidemics. The same approach we will need to use for antibiotic development. And that will also link it to maybe thinking about new innovative ways of paying for antibiotics. You have an ongoing discussion in the US on the Pasteur Act. We have pilots in the UK and Sweden in Europe when it comes to paying not for individual courses, but actually paying a service charge for maintaining a drug on the market, then irrespective of use, making sure that we actually have third and fourth line antibiotics ready to use if uh, now and then there are resistant infections and we cannot use the first and the second line options. Well, Junarna Rottingen, uh, Ambassador for Global Health from Norway. Thank you so much for joining me today to reflect on your observations and perspective from your work with the Act A Facilitation Council, the Solidarity Trials, and another elements of the COVID response, you know, reflecting on the past two and a half years of work on vaccines, tests, and therapies, and some of the lessons learned. Thank you for sharing your perspective on the Financial Intermediary Fund and what we can see in perhaps in the months ahead as that work comes together and, you know, really your reflections on some of the different elements of pandemic preparedness and response that we need to be thinking about now, taking the lessons from the COVID experience and looking into the future. Good luck to you and your colleagues in the year ahead. And I've really enjoyed having the chance to talk to you again today. Thank you very much, Catherine, and thanks to the work you and, and the CSIS does in the space of health security. Very much appreciated. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 